So I've said it before on this podcast, I don't like talking about a problem without talking about a solution. I've had a couple of episodes where I feel like we've done a really good job of breaking down just how messed up the public education system is and just how much danger there is there. So on this episode, I have Russ Barlow on again to talk about his family's experience in homeschooling. Russ breaks down exactly how he and his wife were able to educate their children at home with a practical, easy-to-follow method. What I'm hoping you, the listener, takes away from this episode is a knowledge that you can educate your own children and that despite what the so-called experts say, you are capable and qualified to educate your children. If you head over to my YouTube channel, you can see the materials Russ uses in this video. Now, like last time, if you go to mormonrenegade.com and click on the episode page, you're going to find a code that you can use to get 20% off the materials Russ talks about and references in this episode. That's next on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. So to be the people we want to be, the type of people that can be a light to others, there are some steps we need to take in order to prepare. Certainly, we need to prepare spiritually. We need to increase in our knowledge of the fullness of the restored gospel. But we cannot overlook the necessity of being prepared physically. Look, I've said on this podcast a few times that I feel hard times are coming our way. We know from early church leaders that being prepared physically will be of the utmost importance. That's why until the 22nd of January, I have partnered with Marcelo Sergiopoulos from Food Storage Depot to give Mormon Renegade podcast listeners a special opportunity to learn from an expert on how to not just survive, but to thrive in any emergency situation. If you go to mormonrenegade.com, you will see a post that says, Emergency Prep Not Just to Survive, But to Thrive. Click on the link on that post, for and for just $17, you're going to get a five-day course that outlines principles and practices to thrive in any emergency scenario. Now, if you want to take your prep game to the next level, you can sign up for the $47 option, which will include an audio-visual recording of the five-day seminar, so you can go back and review, and you'll also receive an extra day at that seminar where you can ask questions to tailor your prep plans to your individual needs. Again, go to mormonrenegade.com, click that link, and get signed up. Prepare now to thrive and be a light to others. Because of your generosity last year, I was able to buy better audio equipment and software. I can't tell you how much it meant to me that not only did you spend your time here with me on the podcast, but also that you found enough value in what I'm doing that you donated the podcast to upgrade it. This year, I want to continue to grow. Now, I want to add video to the podcast, continue to help you, my guests, and myself connect better through the show. The other feature I'm working on for this podcast is something I have to remain vague about for now. But what I can say is that it's something that will help us better connect as fundamentalists and traditional LDS folks. Now, to get that equipment for the video content I want to do and to build the infrastructure for the other project with this podcast, donations would certainly be welcome. Or you can go to mormonrenegade.com, click that supply store button, and get some new swag. New stuff will be out soon as well. Now, if you can't afford to do either of those two things, I totally get it. Maybe just keep the podcast in your prayers that we'll be blessed with those resources. Again, thank you for everything you do as well as for listening to the podcast.
You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Well, I'm back again with uh, Russ Barlow. And last time, the, the two previous times Russ and I were, were together and having conversations, we first kind of covered just the basics of the universal model. And I was just fascinated with that. <clears throat> and we kind of talked about, you know, how the universal model not only reveals certain things about science, but it also is a way that it kind of helps program. I shouldn't say program. That's that's the wrong word. Teaches people how to think critically and and allows a different mindset for learning. Um, and then Russ came back on and uh, full disclosure, we had a conversation that just scared the crap right out of me when you start tracing back just how how insidious the roots of um, progressivism and Marxism. And I, I'm just going to call it like I see it here, even Luciferian, some of the things were in public education. Now, as I've said before, I'm not the kind of guy that likes to just say, you know, hey, here's a problem. I want to give you, the listener, some solutions. So today on the podcast, Russ and I are going to have a conversation about his experience in him and his wife teaching their children and also about truth seekers and what that is. So with that, Russ, dude, it's always good to see you, man. I appreciate you coming back on. It's great to see you too, Dave. You know, and so, I think this is something that's very near and dear to my wife and I and our family and, you know, all the other things that we talk about, about how education got where it is, the universal model. It, it's all kind of meaningless unless we can figure out how to take that information into our families and give our children the things they need, the tools they need to stand against this kind of a progressive rewriting of our history and a progressive taking away of the truth. And that's that's our whole point is what can we do to give our kids the proper tools to fight this and to win this battle? So let, let me ask you this before we we dive in too deep. Do you remember there being like a breaking point at which you said, OK, enough's enough. We're 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 going to teach the kids ourselves. There actually were more than one breaking point because we have 15 children. And they didn't come all at once. They came a little here and a little there. Probably one of the biggest upsets in our whole life was our first, our oldest daughter, that's our third child, was deaf. And when we were presented with that idea, it was, I think a lot of people kind of had this idea that, well, you're going to grow out of it, right? You can teach them and they'll grow out of this deafness. And when we were talking to the lady that was kind of helping coach us. And she asked us this question, do you think that it's worse to be blind or deaf? Now, most of us that see feel like it would be worse for us to be blind than it would be for it to be deaf. We can get around, we can see, right? right? But in fact, it's far worse to be deaf because being deaf at starting out life at a young age and being deaf means there's no language. And if there's no language, there's no way to remember things. There's no way to associate things, and there's no way to create relationships that last, because if you can't hear, there's no way to connect all these dots. So given the thing, given the, the worst handicap, 
deafness is actually by far. Today, you have a deaf community, but you don't have a blind community because the deaf community have, have to come together on their own terms. So deafness is by far a long, more long-term and a more difficult handicap to deal with, especially our deaf daughter is going to be in the hearing world or associating that. So that, that really turned our whole world upside down. And, and when, when you were sending your kids to school, were there any uh, programs or anything like that that they offered to try to help bridge that gap? Well, that's actually, um, we kind of like to jokingly say that we had two kids in college when by the time we were in our 20, early 20s. And that's because one of them, our deaf daughter, went to a hearing uh, to a hearing impaired program at one college in, in Nevada, at, at Clark County uh, Community College, CCSN. And the other, our son, our older son, he had a speech impediment and they had a program at UNLV. And so our kids would go off in the morning to UNLV and to CCSN and they were only <laughs> five, you know, so that was our thing. <laughs> nice, nice. But, you know, what happened for us at that time is that because there wasn't a lot of programs, there wasn't even a testing program in place in Nevada that Heidi got pretty involved in actually spearheaded being a part of an Alexander Grant Bell Foundation here called Sound Foundation. We were acting president and vice president. She was mostly the, the one that did all the work. But she not only uh, got involved in, in the program of taking the our deaf daughter, who had a little bit of residual hearing, and helping her learn how to live and function in the hearing world. So she actually learned to talk. She learned to use a little bit of residual hearing. And then about the time she was 12, we were able to get cochlear implants for her. So she functions completely in the hearing world, but that was a battle. And the long-term thing, what happened is that we got involved, created a parenting program where we would teach the kids in our own business. We had a little office upstairs. We had a conference room. We'd have people come over and she would work with and teach parents of deaf kids how to communicate with them, how to help them. And UNLV liked the program so well, they actually ended up importing it and taking it and making it part of their, their program. Um, the other thing that we did was she was instrumental in getting early hearing intervention testing done at all the hospitals. That's now a law in Nevada where babies are born and they're automatically tested for hearing loss so that you can catch it early. Earlier you can get it, the better. So that was kind of the, that time in our life was shaped quite a bit by our involvement in teaching deaf children how to speak and orally communicate in the oral world. Huh. It, but that was kind of the, the impetus for like, we, you know, you, you guys feeling like, Hey, we can do this better than, than anybody else could. Well, there wasn't, we weren't homeschooling so much there because we had all, they were always in these special programs. And so in the special programs, we were involved in it. That was part of the requirement is we had to go uh, co-teach and, and Heidi also worked with when she went into regular mainstream elementary school, she would go sit in the classrooms and she would teach the teachers how to do this, she, she actually had a, some really cool ways of teaching teachers how to teach speech sounds and how to pre-teach it. And then Heidi would have to bring it home, teach our daughter all of this information that she was going to learn at school. So she was pre-teaching and then sending it back. 
And it was a way of taking whatever they were going to teach and learning the language. Mostly that's what it's about. It's about feeding language and about learning language. What we did not realize is that all that was kind of training for us to understand how homeschools ought to work in a family and some of the things that are more important, what we've, what we've lost. But the next thing that came along is we had twins and they, twin girls, they are also autistic. And so that was a whole nother, that's, a, that's like level two. So the, the deaf and hearing impaired was level one. That was a learning experience. And our house was never quiet after the deaf daughter because you and I, if, you, if I were to ask you to describe an apple, Dave, go ahead. What, how would you describe an apple? You were just, an apple? Yeah. It's a fruit that grows on a tree. It can either be red or green or golden in color. Uh, because it's a fruit, it has seeds inside of it. It's edible and it's delicious. Um, so that's really great. But if you think about all the words you just used that have no meaning, right? Like delicious, edible, um, from a tree, unless you know where you're outside, and there is a tree. About 20 to 30% of the words you just used are disconnected to a deaf person because they've never heard that. They don't know that word. You and I pick up language just in the random thing, but a, a deaf person has to be taught that and has to be repeated about a thousand times over and over again, pounded in. We just pick it up naturally. They have to be taught that. And so what Heidi would do is she would narrate life. And you would think that you did a better job than most people when they're first introduced to the idea. But she would take an apple and say, oh, look at this apple. This apple is round. The, the round apple is red. And if we look, there's bumps on the top. And then on the bottom, there's a bump. And there's a stem that comes out. This stick comes out of the top. This stick comes out of the round apple with that's red that has a bump. And, okay, now take that and, and go on. And you could talk about that apple for a really long time. That meant there was no quiet time in the house, except for right. when everybody's in bed. Right, right. Wow, you you guys really did have kind of like the gamut of what the school would classify as special needs across the board. Sure. And, and then when we, um, with the autistic twins, they weren't actually, um, they didn't, didn't figure out that they were autistic until actually after they were out of school. So they didn't know what was wrong. They were just these issues they were having. And one of the things that Heidi dove into was to try to understand brain injury. Autism is actually just a brain injury. So if you really want to help somebody with autism, you need to understand the brain. Now, that's the same thing that happens if you have a stroke or the same thing that happens if you have um, something in, um, that, that can happen during birth. You can have a, like an almost heart attack where that the baby doesn't get air or blood or something, oxygen. And, and it's, it's called dyspraxia. So that dyspraxia can actually hurt the brain and it takes time to overcome that speech impediments, kind of like a stroke or something. So learning about brain injury was the next thing that we dove into quite a bit. Heidi actually got really deep into that too. And she developed a program with a friend called BITS where she would flash little pieces of information rapidly over and over again. So it would just be like a lot of information in front of the, these these uh, autistic girls and she would also use tactile learning so she would put um, things inside a box where they'd have to feel what it is like 
peanut butter or sandpaper or feathers or really gross things or whatever. She would do all that because it was a way of connecting and reprogramming the brain. That's what's happened is that in an autistic or in a brain injury, that the brain somehow has a misfire and it has to be retrained on how it can connect to make new connections. Now, something that happened along the way, they were also in special programs. So we were kind of in the schools and, and Heidi would not only do these IEPs, these individual ed education programs for our kids, she became an advocate for others. And she would have um, these meetings where school administrators or teachers or principals, they would try to say, that, oh, they can't do this and they don't. And she knew her way well enough that that if she came to those meetings, they pretty well knew whatever she said was going to go was going to happen because she had the firepower that if she needed to talk to attorneys and follow due process, they knew she would she knew how to do that. So <laughs> they they were they they were on their guard and on their toes when she showed up for sure. And she's she's an introvert actually, but boy, when you get in, she gets unleashed in front of somebody over kids that introvert goes away and this incredibly powerful woman comes out you better get out of the way <laughs> yeah oh yeah yeah no i can i've seen my wife get yeah yeah we always i always used to laugh you kind of think to myself here comes you know the the, the mother bear right and being a guy who was raised in alaska i know for a fact that uh there's nothing more dangerous than a, a mama bear protecting her cub so right but. well and what she she had an uncanny ability though to make the enemies her friends from for the most part those that wanted that were there for the wrong reason never did become friends but she would for example go sit in a classroom and the teacher would get so uncomfortable because she would be sitting back there taking notes and it was because she was just observing and then she'd go home and she'd create kind of a, a workbook or cue sheet she would do this massive amount of work go into the teacher and say okay, here's a tool that can help you do this. And those teachers would often take that and from then on for the rest of their careers, that's what they used as their baseline for, for teaching. So this is, there's a lot of stuff that kind of came to play, like working on the brain injury and dealing with the deafness and dealing with the other things we, uh, as we went along. And that, that's all part of what shaped our homeschool journey. Now, what we really did is at first, we just pulled the kids out of junior high. We Junior high was the worst time. So we would let them go into elementary because we had so much going on. And then she would pull them out for junior high. And then when they go back into high school and finish out, that's kind of how we did it for the first few kids. And that worked out pretty well until some things started happening. We had an incident with with um, one of our daughters at the local school here. And it was, it was just time. She saw that she was walking and it was like the sea of darkness. And it wasn't that they were um, people, you know, kids that were of different ethnic background. It was that there was this kind of darkness that was over the whole body of the students that were walking out of that school. And she looked over and she thought, oh, there's one that's just bright and white i wonder what who she is and she realized that was our daughter yeah. and and that was when the spirit said get her out now 
So that was the, the big change. And right after that, we pulled them all out of everything. There was one event that kind of confirmed that too, about the same time. Yeah, she pulled up to the elementary school. We had, I think, two kids, maybe three kids that were going there at the time. And as she pulled up, it looked like, she said she described it, it looked like a bank run. Like people were just kind of going there. You didn't know what it is. And as she walked in, because she's had this relationship with uh, people over these years doing these things, the one lady caught her eye and she, she kind of nodded to her and she quick shuttled our three kids out. And they got in the car and we left. Every other kid in that school was locked down, put on buses, taken to an offsite. They were doing a full shooter kind of a mock and they wouldn't let parents even talk to their kids or have their kids oh. for about three to four hours after that. They, they took them, they bust them, they took them off to another undisclosed school. And, you know, we didn't have to go through that. But that was kind of about the same time that it was, okay, we're, we're done. We're out. We're completely out. <laughs> so that was the catalyst. You know, I remember, just real quick, my experience, I remember being bored to tears in school all the way through. And I, I didn't know it then because I was kind of immature. And it's not that I'm a whole bunch more mature now, but a little bit. I can look back with hindsight. And one of the things that 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 I noticed was is that um, I was really good in the subjects I liked, right? Writing, English, history, and a few electives. Other than that, I just had no interest. And... <sighs> there was just kind of a lack of trying there fast forward now um i'm i'm pretty certain that uh that my son uh has adhd that's what the school diagnosed him with or add excuse me one one of them and um they wanted to cram drugs down his throat it was like, look, this is what we want to do. And I'm like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I sympathize with the teacher, right? She's got 30 kids and and she can't necessarily devote a whole bunch of time to, to my son. So we, we took our kids out of school. And this was right before the pandemic, Russ. This was probably, this was probably the fall of 2019. So we take our kids out of school. And they start doing uh, homeschooling, and it's kind of an online format kind of a thing. And the first thing I noticed was is that the kids, my two kids, they just wanted to sleep, right? Now, I have six kids total. Um, th these are our last two. These are our twins. And for like the first week and a half, they just wanted to sleep, and I couldn't figure it out. And I honestly think it was like a detox time. I don't know how else to describe it, right? Um, because they just, I, I could, I didn't realize it at the time, probably because it was just always the way it was. But I look back now and every time they came home from school or right before they went to school, they were just amped up, right? And not in a good way, not in like, hey, an excited sort of way. It was like anxiety. And when they got home, 
and they realized they didn't have to go back. They just kind of almost exhaled. And I remember my wife and I were talking like, we should really get them up. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe we should just let this go for a week or two and then pick this back up. But what I've noticed is that my kids don't have nearly the anxiety that they once did. Um, they went out and got jobs. Because the other thing I noticed was is that to complete the, the stuff that we asked them to complete that's required, they're getting it done in... I don't know, four to six hours tops. And so I'm like, well, what, what, what the hell were you doing the other three hours of the day while you were there? Right. And this raised a whole bunch of questions. And so they went and got jobs and, and they're doing fantastic. I mean, they're passing their courses with better grades than what they had before they are um, getting real world experience. So you're talking to a guy who used to say, homeschooling's for weirdos, right? I'll, I'm not going to lie. I was that guy. I was like, oh, your kids are going to be so awkward and backwards and you know, it's not going to be good. And and now I tell my adult children, I'm like, you may want to think about keeping them home and not sending them off to school. You bring up a couple of good points. And one of them is we'll go through in a minute and talk about the myths about um, homeschoolers. But, you, you know, we live in a culture, the, the Latter-day Saint culture is one of not homeschooling. They've put such an emphasis on state schools and, and church schools. And they actually, back in the 80s, late 80s, they um, came out with a letter that was read from the first presidency that were the signs of apostasy. And this was at about, this is during a time when there was kind of this movement of this patriot movement a little bit different than the one today, but it was a patriot movement. And that was where people were saying that you don't have to pay taxes because you're a free man and you don't have to get a driver's license because you're a, you have this, you know, this constitutional right to drive a car. And it became kind of a big, uh, a big deal about these things that these patriot movement people were doing. And at that particular time, there were the, they put together a list of what kind of a person is in danger of apostasy because of these things. And one of them was excessive attention to things like patriot movement or being involved in that. But one of the other things was homeschool. Homeschooling was actually a mark of a potential apostasy. And another thing was too much attention on certain books of scripture, like the book of Isaiah. So the, the very things that we should be doing were included in a list of things that would recognize people as potential apostate um, behavior. And so what that did is it sort of set up a culture that not only did you have to fight the normal myths of homeschooling, but you kind of had to go against your whole culture because you were considered potentially an apostate. And that was in Utah wasn't so much in, down here, but that was a, an interesting thing to have to fight. And I think that's the reason so many members of the church and even the divergent groups that have grown up with this kind of idea that homeschooling is for the fundamentalists. Homeschooling is for those people that are off the grid, that are kind of kooks, like you said. They're, you know, they're kind of weirdos. So, so. so let me ask you this, because... Obviously, I didn't become a Mormon until 1995, but 
wasn't Howard uh, not, not uh, Benson either in the first presidency or the president of the church during those days? And he was he was a pretty stalwart patriot, right? Yes, he was actually. And so it wasn't him that put this out. And um, you know, Benson, I believe, was a patriot. I believe he was a constitutionalist, and he was a member of the John Birch Society. Uh, the John Birch Society, and. So he had to temper some of those things as a, an apostle. He was had to do that. But there was a battle that was going on behind closed doors in the church. And that battle was over those people that wanted to be uh, true to the Constitution, that wanted to resist this changing narrative that was coming. And then there were those that wanted the changing narrative. They wanted to bring that in. So this battle that's going on, inside the church. We talked a little bit about that during our last podcast. And this battle didn't just affect BYU. It affected the whole idea of, of schools. Utah is affected by that because you had seminary programs that were in right ingrained in as part of the schools. When I went to high school, I wasn't a member of the church, so I didn't go to seminary. And if you didn't go to seminary, you were pretty much an outcast or an outsider. You know, that was a that was a separator from who you were. But at the time, um, I was in a private school up to eighth grade. And then after eighth grade, I was in homeschool, just at home. And then after a couple of years, it was just going nowhere for me. So I, I told my mom I wanted to go back to school. And that's how I kind of got to know the school side of the high school side of things. When I was a young, young man. It blows my mind that I, I'd never heard of that, but it blows my mind that in the eighties, there was actually a, a letter from the first presidency. that said homeschooling is a sign of apostasy or, or can be an indicator of apostasy. Right. And it wasn't, it wasn't that it, that was specific. It was just a list of things and that, was on that, list. that would suggest somebody might be in danger of apostasy. So it didn't say you were an apostate. It didn't say that directly. But sometimes ha things have unintended consequences. Things might be well-intended, but they certainly don't come across. And I think one of the not well-intended things was that there was the stigma placed on homeschool in general, because if you were a homeschooler, you were probably associating with some fundamentalist group and therefore you were in danger of apostasy because that was the idea. That was the mindset behind it. But anyway, that kind of leads us to some of the myths about homeschooling. The first myth is that parents aren't enough, that somehow you have to have a teaching degree or that you've got to have some special training or that you have to know something or have gone to enough school yourself. And that's a complete falsehood. Every single parent, if they just taught their children what they know, that's it. Even no matter what level of school they they just taught their children what they know. That's a pretty significant education alone. And then the child can go on after that. <clears throat> so parents know they're, it's a God-given right. And we don't live in a world that's illiterate. Maybe there are some people, but not much anymore. So just teaching what you know is enough to be a homeschool parent. Now, don't worry. You don't have to teach them calculus. You don't have to teach them all those kind of things because that's not part of what your curriculum will be for the most part with your young kids. You just need to teach them 
how to fill out, write out a check, how to measure stuff to put in the laundry and how to, you know, pay attention to taking care of an animal or something. All you have to do is have them write down the steps that they're doing, maybe make a budget. So there's just an enormous amount of things that you're doing kind of naturally that you just break it down and let the kids do. And that's enough. That's a myth that you don't have enough training to be uh, a homeschool parent. Yeah, I think that that's one that has been extremely effective. Um, I won't name where I was working at the time or anything like that, but it was uh, right when we took our kids out of school. And I remember this lady said, what what makes you think that you or your wife are qualified to do that? and I was actually really glad she asked the question because it, it made me really, because I'll be honest, when, when we jerked our kids out of school, I was more pissed off than anything else. Right. I was like, we're done. I'm not going to do this. And it was one of those things where I hadn't thought it out real well, Russ, right. Me, me and my wife were both pretty hot at that time. And so we were like, yeah, we're, you know, we're, this is over, we're done. But I'm glad that lady asked me that question. You know, what, what makes you think that you're qualified? And I stewed on that for a couple of days, right? And I remember, and I, and I think I said this in the la- on the last episode that you and I talked. The, the conclusion I got as I settled down and I prayed about it was, we're uniquely qualified, because those kids are our calling. And if that's the case, and we know God fills in the gaps and gives inspiration on top of us doing the best we can, we are the most qualified to teach our children because we know them the most. And they're our responsibility. They're our calling. And and that's what I ended up telling this lady. And it didn't make a mark. I mean, she was like, okay, fundy. And then just kind of moved on. But, but that was, that was, that was the the thing I got. And the more I thought about it, I was like, what an insidious way of getting people to look at it. Right. What makes you qualified to teach your kids? And, and, and it's so, it's so insidious. Well, that the next part myth kind of ties a little bit to that. And that's the myth that your kids aren't going to have any social interaction and that somehow they need their peers so that they can learn. But the fact is, is the worst place our children should learn anything is from their peers because their peers are messed up. and They're trying to figure out life too. Now, why would you go take advice from somebody more messed up than you? And right. so the, the idea that peers need to be the teachers is a complete falsehood. The the children, our children should be looking to their parents as their mentors, and they should be looking at family leaders, whether it's a brother or an uncle or a father, grandfather, or somebody that's in a much better place that should be their mentor, not, not the bully or the buddy that's the jock or somebody else, because that kid's over there going through the same stuff, and he's not going to be a source of good and true information. He's going to be messed up and they'll get messed up together. So it's a myth that you think you have to have peers to be successful. Now, I'm not suggesting that they don't have friends. I'm, what I'm suggesting is this idea that you have to have peers 
in order to succeed in school. That's just not true. Yeah, also, yeah. Show, social life either. You don't have to. I mean, we might have a little bit of a unique situation with our homeschool, but our kids have an unbelievably wide variety of interactions with other kids because we provide that opportunity. We don't go anywhere that we don't have a purpose to reach out. Right. That was the other thing. I fought, I fought more st um, stigmas and just wrongheaded thinking when I took my kids out of school than any other time. And I remember when we withdrew our kids, that was one of the things they talked about was is that your kid's going to be awkward. He won't be able to socialize well. They'll be behind when it comes to picking up social cues and they won't fit in with society. That was the one I remember. She said, they won't fit in with society. And I said, well, judging by where society is right now, your terms are acceptable. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that they don't, they don't quite fit in, but here's what I found Russ. And this is just my own experience. Once the kids started doing their, getting their education at home, that freed up some other things for them, like getting jobs, right? Which if you're concerned about your kid really, you know, getting, uh, you know, not being socially awkward, a job is the perfect place for them to learn that a lot of times because they have to deal with the public most of the time, right? And kid jobs, you got to learn how to deal with the public. You got to learn how to do, you know, take instructions from a manager, those sorts of things. That has been of way more worth to my kids in the long run than the extra four hours that they were sitting in school. Well, that's a that's a good point. We're going to talk a little bit about that in just a minute, but I want to identify the third myth. Well, the first two is one is that the idea you don't have enough, that you're not qualified. Number two is that they're not going to have social interaction or that they'll be somehow just unable to function in the world without their peers. And the third myth is that you have to teach all the subjects, that you have to have math and history and science, and, and you might as well have a couple of instruments in there too while they're practicing and do all the stuff. That is another complete falsehood. You don't have to have all those subjects. The most, for the most part, when you go through school, and you'll probably remember this, you go through the subjects over and over and over again. So you do it because you don't remember. You have a great forgetter installed in your head and you don't remember. And so even if you did take the subject, you're not going to remember it in two years anyway. The concept that we should be focusing on with our kids is the process of learning and the experience of learning, not the memorization of rote facts, not a test to prove that they actually memorize something, because that, that's not learning. That's just memorizing facts. And that's what the school does is try to get you to just memorize, to get a test pass, to get a good score so that you can get a degree, so that you can get a better job. And so this is kind of a cycle that starts out when you're young. And in reality, it's the learning process itself that's important. It's the accumulation of knowledge, not facts, but the accumulation of knowledge and how it applies in life. So those are the three myths that we have identified, the three biggest. There's lots of other little things. But if we get all three of those out of the way, then we can start kind of building our own platform, our own base, 
of how we should do homeschool. I'm not here to tell you, you got to follow this curriculum or you've got to do that thing because like you said, you are the one that is uniquely qualified. What you have to do is number one, have confidence that you have that qualification. And number two, you don't have to do it the same way as your neighbor or as some other guru that's out there telling you the stuff or even the same child. You can have one kid that's going to have a completely different way of learning than another. So that's that's the big deal. Get Let's get a platform that we can build on. Let's identify the common themes that need, that I think all homeschools ought to have those, those baseline items that says, okay, if I do these things, I'm going to have a long-term successful homeschool. Before we move on from the myths, and maybe you're going to cover this later, if so, that's great. But how should re- parents respond to that, right? Because it's more than just the 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 teacher in the or the principal of the school that they have to answer these questions to, right? These questions are going to come up at the Thanksgiving dinner table, and if you're differing from your family on that, you're gonna you're gonna get those same questions, right? Those same three myths, or maybe even at church, right? I mean. Yeah. Whatever the case is, is that something that you're going to cover later or do we have time to explore that a little bit? We can talk about that a little bit. So number one, the first thing we talked about is you're not enough. If you have a scriptural background at all, all you need to do is just go back into the scripture, starting at Genesis, particularly the Joseph Smith translation. That's the one where Joseph receives this revelation in 1830 and he translates the Bible two months after he finishes the Book of Mormon. He's back to work on the Bible. So you can read part of that in the book of Moses. So that's in the standard works. The church does not disqualify the inspired version of the Bible. They have a statement on there. So it's not like you're going to read something that's fundamentalist. Your Joseph Smith's inspired version is a usable version. You can take it to church just like anything else. It's, it's, it's the Bible. It's the King James version with Joseph's commentary and, and uh, revelations on how it should have been, the things that were taken out. Why that's important is in the first part of Genesis, when it talks about Adam and Eve and how they taught their children, they were told, it said that they were given a language that was pure and undefiled, and that men were inspired to write and to use what they wrote to teach their children. So they actually, that's the instruction right there, is parents, particularly fathers, write a journal, Teach your children from your journal how to read and to write. And basically, that's it's a teach by inspiration. Write down the things that you're inspired. That's the qualification for the first homeschool. If it's good enough for Adam, it ought to be good enough for us. Right? That's the first step. Sure. That's not the yeah. only step. That's the first step. Now, it's important also to recognize if you pick up Doctrine and Covenants, uh, Section 68, I think it is, If you read in there, it says that whenever, and this is talking about men getting, you know, receiving this inspiration, when a man is moved upon by the Holy Ghost, whatsoever he receives or writes down is from God. It's the mind of God, the will of God, the word of God. Okay. In other words, you have the right to receive your own scripture. And that's what you write. That's the inspiration that you write down and that you teach from. So get the confidence to go to the Lord and receive that inspiration. And even if that inspiration is something super simple, write it down 
and teach from that thing and just follow that. That's important that we get to that point. So that's number one, the authority. Number two, you already hit the point about the myth on uh, peers, because like you said, if you want to see what the world's doing, you don't want your kids to be that way. Well, that's, that's pretty straightforward. Right. I don't want little Johnny to act like the, the hoodlum down the street. Right. right. And number three is thinking you've got to teach all the subjects. So what you do is you teach something the kid likes and he gets really good at it. And then when he goes over to grandma's house or aunt Susie's house, and he knows these things about the thing that he's so good at that he overwhelms them with information and data, you know, whether that's dinosaurs or whether that's a puffer fish and he knows everything about puffer fish. It doesn't matter. He's going to have this much knowledge. And I, I, I even had a son, one of my older sons, who thought my our younger kids were sentenced and not going to get enough. and They were going to be so dumb and they didn't have math. Well, it turns out they're more advanced than most of the kids. Every single time our kids were homeschooled, when they were sent back to high school, every single time in every single class, they were put in advanced classes. Wow. It, and, and they didn't have to take that class. In other words, they didn't get put in advanced history because we taught them history. We just taught them how to think and how to, uh, you know, the process of how to think and, and break things down. And so every single one of our kids that we pulled out that put back in high school went in advanced classes, got in advanced classes. So the, the proof is just simply in the process of what they're doing. No, I, I think that's great. Um, I remember you talking about teaching all the subjects. I remember as a surveyor, I had to take some hellacious math classes. And people always make the assumption, oh, you're a surveyor. You must really love math. I'm like, I detest math. You know, but I'm blessed to live in a day now where that's a really small part of what I do. And it gets really handled by the tech right now i right. have books that have the theorems in them that i can go back and use but um yeah i so i would submit to you can you explain the quadratic equation to me right now no no <laughs> so but i bet you did it when you're in and uh you're clicking your classes right absolutely i remember i remember my brain being turned to tapioca sometimes over certain math equations, especially statistics that, that really, you know, that, that one was really tough. Um, no, well, I can't remember. What happened that. though, is that you learned how, and you're, you picked it up. It didn't matter how, it didn't matter if you would have learned that in seventh grade or right. you know, even 10th grade, you learned it in the moment that you needed it. Yep. And you got through the class and you don't remember it anymore. Nope. And haven't used it since. So what benefit then is it to make sure to force some seventh grader to learn that quadratic equation? There is none. And that's, and that's been, and see when, and, and that's part of the thing, when you say that you all of a sudden get labeled a heretic, so to speak. Right. Right. Because but then the reality is the reality is, is that that happens with everything. And yep. so what you do is you teach a child how to respond to his environment how to think, and then how to go figure out what you need to do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So those are the three myths. And, and I'm glad you kind of gave, gave folks out there some 
a shield or a little bit of ammo to fire back. Because sometimes I think that homeschooling has such a, a bad rap to it that it's often the parents who I think bear the brunt of it the most, right? When they decide they're going to homeschool their kids because, and maybe this was just me, but I felt like I constantly had to, to justify what I was doing. Well, I think even more than justifying it to the outside world, I think you have to justify it to the man in the mirror. And that's the part that's even harder especially after you've done it for a few days and you've just been, you're worn out, you're frazzled, kids don't do things. And there are some things that you should just get to know. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the most important person to get on board is the person beside you, your spouse, and the person in the mirror. And they're both equally important. Yeah, I'm glad you hit on that because I'll be honest, the first three months we did it, Russ, I was like, oh, I'm screwed. I screwed this up, right? I screwed this up so bad. I should have kept my tongue. I should I should have bit my tongue. I should have, you know, weaseled my way around some things. Um, yeah, I felt like a huge failure. I'm not gonna lie. And then all of a sudden, one day, my son like brings me in his his essentially his grades to look at. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Well, good on you, right? Um yeah, I think you're right. I think the 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 guy in the mirror is is pretty critical too sometimes. And I have a I have a clue for the guy in the mirror to how to help him. I'll share that with you in just a minute. All right. <laughs> All right. So those are the three myths. Those are the three myths. So in our experience, and Our experience is probably different. And I understand that there are families of all different types and makeups today. And so this isn't a way of categorizing anybody. It's a way of what we did and how we can best share and then adapt it to your particular needs. And so because we've had these special needs kids, hearing impaired, autistic, we've had ADHD, had one one of our kids had dyspraxia. That means that she had a little bit of a stroke when Mm -hmm. because they doctors didn't want her to get born. And that meant that she was delayed in her speech. She's totally fine now. But all of these things contributed to our understanding because we were in the college system, the special school, special ed, uh, been directly involved in curriculum development and teaching teachers. And then finally, even in our homeschool, And then because I was working on the universal model for all those years, when we started, when we were homeschooling, Heidi would take the stuff that I was working on and she would adapt it into these worksheets and then go teach the kids. So she was teaching them out of the universal model, mostly because I would have to have her come and read it out loud to me to make sure that it was going to make sense to someone else. And as she would read it out loud, she would get the content and think, oh, that's so cool. I'm going to go teach that to the kids. And that's kind of how our work pages got put together to create the first workbook on the universal model on the, the volume one. That's, that's how that happened. That's cool. But as we began to kind of develop that and we started thinking about, we needed to have a little bit clear statement of what we've experienced. What were the most important things? This kind of fundamental thing that if we were to say, what's the ABCs of, of our family and define that as what truth seekers Academy is what what we're about. 
And it's kind of interesting that the number one that we list, the number one thing is dad's got to be involved. Patriarchal integration. Okay. Now that's kind of a scary thing, especially if dad's out there busting a hump, trying to make money, trying to take care of the family. How does he get involved in school and teaching his kids? So the first thing that other people will say, and it's partly true, is make sure your priorities right. Because if you're going to work two jobs so you can pay for your glamping trailer and your two side-by-sides and your jet skis and your boat, maybe you should think about realigning that. But aside from that, you do that on your own. Minimum, dad needs to be involved in both the curriculum choice and he has to do something where he's weekly involved. Now, how that started for me because I was just like everybody else out there just trying to make a buck. And I thought my most important focus was on the money. But my wise wife always was looking for ways to make sure that I was engaged with the kids. And so I would give the kids a report, a a subject that they would have to give me a report on, that they would turn into me on Thursday. I'd give it to them Monday. They would give me the rough draft Thursday, and then they'd rewrite after I corrected it on Friday. And so what happened is that mom spent the time teaching them all week long. Dad gets one report and dad gets all the glory at the end of the week because they want to mostly know what he thought about what they wrote. And he gets the credit for doing all the work. So that just kind of is a nice byproduct in case you wanted to know. (laughs) I I could see that. Um, I think so often we we have this idea that we're going to live some sort of balanced life, right? That our our work life is going to balance with our personal life, and if you throw homeschooling in that mix, then it it, it I could only imagine it. It's no, I don't have to imagine. It seems overwhelming. One of the things I did with with my boys, especially, uh, just because my daughters didn't want to go out and stand out in the elements. But I took my boys to work with me quite a bit. Yeah, that's a great idea. And I just remember there. I just remember thinking as I was teaching them how to set up a, a, a total station or the GPS. I was like, "This feels natural. This feels natural. This feels real." Right. But I think it's important that you take, even though your daughters might not want to do the elements, they need to be with dad too. And and they were, we found, we found other ways to make that work, right? When I would do the yep. CAD work or something like that. But, but the, the thing I was going to say is, is that I don't think there's any such thing as a balanced life for us. I, I've never seen it where everything just balances perfectly. I've given up that idea and went to more of an integrated life, right? Sure. And, in that integration, I think I uh, y- you can strike the balance, so to speak. Well, I, I actually love that integration because that's really what it's about, is integrating the principles that are most dear to us into our lives and letting it shape that. And so having dad involved should be an important thing. And if, you know, dad's not around or there's some other alternative that needs to happen, children need a father figure. So it could mm-hmm. be a grandfather could be an uncle, could be somebody, but they need a, a father figure to represent that part, that part of the equation. But to the least, anyway, get dads involved. Dads, pick up your, you know, your book and just come up with something creative. I would 
randomly say something about write me a report on ants or give me a report on lightning or something. And it was just, they would dive into it and I would make the length of the report different based on the age or the ability of the, of the child. So the, you know, the six-year-old, he didn't have to write as long a report as a 16-year-old. That's how I got involved. And then later on, I actually do some of the teaching. Now I teach my kids a couple of things. I, one day a week, I take a two hours and I teach them. And so that's just, I enjoy that. I, I found it's not been easy, but I've learned, I've, I've enjoyed my own learning process. So the number two thing is integrating family. So not just dad, but family, bring the family together, teach them together. It's the idea that we have to teach little Johnny and big Johnny and even bigger Susie as completely different that, that we need to bring them together. And here's an interesting fact. If you've ever taught in your church Sunday school or in primary or something, you'll notice that no matter what you teach, you learned more than the mm -hmm. people you're teaching. And so if little Johnny has an opportunity to teach, then he will actually learn more in the act of teaching than he would have if he had just been taught by his older brother or sister. So it's important to have this integration where responsibilities and roles of teaching get shifted around. And we actually have found that in our case, sometimes the younger kids are smarter than the older ones on some things that they just get clicks and they know when they're, they're pretty. Our youngest boy, for example, when we did our first UM workbook, we got to the end, we were almost to the printer and we hadn't done anything on weather. And he said, oh, Dad, we forgot weather. And so he went and laid out his own pages on clouds and wrote up all the questions that should ask about cumulonimbus and, and cumulus and serious clouds. And he was eight. Wow. So, you know, that that was just our experience. But every the, the young ones actually are going to have as much opportunity to teach as the older ones. And it will bind the family. Right. So that's why that's that's a number two, number two baseline that we did. So if, if I can ask just a question here. <clears throat> I think because of the way that public education has been rigged, you use the test as an idea if they've learned the material, right? Learn is a loose word because it implies that it's there forever. When in reality, they're just measuring the retention in that one semester. However, I would think at some point you'd want some sort of measuring stick to see how they're coming along, right? Well, I guess it depends, because in some cases, I think that's just a false idea of modern, the modern education systems, thinking that you've got to actually teach to a test. Because in reality, what's a better way to measure your child? Is it because he knows facts or because he knows how to think? Can he work through a problem? Can he can he deal with situational problems between older and younger siblings you know how is he able to respond to me that's a much better way of measuring um, ability or success right i thought now, today's day and age uh, rather than the test show me how to find the answer where do i go to find it right we should we should do that for sure
that brings up the third foundational pillar for us is subjects are integrated. So in other words, rather than teaching history disconnected from English and math and all these other things, try to bring things together. Use subjects so that if you're teaching a subject, in the case we'll talk about our human body book in a moment, use the human body as the spelling, the English and writing, find ways to connect history. So it's it's a supplementary, it's a subject that you go and branch out to all the things, but you connect them. And as you connect them, you treat the whole subject, which is kind of like eating whole food, rather than like pulling out some piece of it and just learning about this line. Think of the thing as a whole. So integrate your subjects together so that you're teaching together rather than having, okay, now we're doing spelling. and Okay, now we're doing history and okay now we're doing math bring them together as much as possible i mean math is sometimes just math that's what it is but there are ways you can bring math into other subjects no i think that makes perfect sense i and and realistically if you if you've ever read a really good history book or watched a really good documentary that's how they present it Right. I mean, look, we we one of my favorite subjects, World War Two. Right. When when Germany goes in to invade um, Russia, it's just not the Russian troops. It's the weather that causes Germany so many issues. Right. And I guess if you were teaching World War Two history, it's one way you could tie in the physical sciences with it. Well, not only can you tie the physical sciences in, but. Why not tie that into where Napoleon lost the battle as he invaded Russia also? So in other words, bring back another piece of history and connect it to that. You know, talk about why the French Revolution failed in the right after the American Revolution. Let those two look side by side. What was different between the American Revolution and what they stood for versus the French Revolution and what they stood for? You know, go back instead of just memorizing the idea that in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue that's a great thing mnemonic to remember that one thing but aside from just that what else was going on in the world you know for example Columbus came here and he had gone to numerous different benefactors to try to get money and the king and queen of Spain ended up giving him the money because the 700 year war with the Moors the Islamic people was finally over and they wanted to do some great thing for to recognize Christ. And so was that just coincidence that he happened to be there and that was the right thing? Right. So right. connect it to scriptures, connect it to history, other places so that it's not just the single thing out there. So that would be part of that scriptural integration as well. That's what scriptural integration is. Find a way that everything we do ties into scripture somehow, not just reading scriptures in the morning, you know, but like we talked when we first started here about how do you have confidence as a teacher? What gives you the right to teach? Well, the scriptures say Adam taught his children out of the books that they wrote. Now you're integrating scriptures into your teaching. If you want to talk about science, um, the human body, we can talk about how 
the creation by God of the body and all the different things that come together. There's some really cool things that you can talk about that connect scriptures to the body other than just saying God created. You can, you know, because in Moses 6.63, it says that all things are made to testify of him. Right? Okay, let's go find it. How does it testify? How do we look at water and see how water itself testifies? Well, Christ says that whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. Okay, that's living water. How does living water connect? You know, and so you, you're using scriptures as kind of this base, and it makes it real. All of a sudden, right. instead of the scriptures be that thing that I talk about on Sunday, scriptures become part of my life. And, and immediately when somebody says something, I want to think about well, what does scripture say? How do I can, how can I tie that together? That's kind of cool to know this or to know that. How does that work? Gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I see your last point down there is consecration. Yeah, that's probably, that's the one thing that when it got done, okay, so you're learning and you're doing all this stuff. Why? What's the purpose of learning? In section 93, Joseph Smith receives a revelation from God, and God specifically says, I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth, and you have not brought your children up in light and truth, and for this reason, the enemy has power as yet over you. Okay, so, and that revelation was given not just to Joseph Smith, it was given to Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, and Sidney Rigdon. This is the first presidency of the U of the church. So there's no higher authority in the church. And the Lord is chasing them saying, I've commanded you to do, to do this and you haven't. And this has caused the problems in your family. And he says, now, yeah, I give you a commandment that you teach your children light and truth. But he doesn't just leave it at that because that's the section where he says, and truth is knowledge of things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come. So now we have a definition of what truth is. We're commanded to teach them light and truth. But then later on, it goes on to say that truth, not only is this knowledge of things, but it's also the spirit of God, even light. Hmm. So if you, if you just study section 93, it tells you you're commanded to teach your children knowledge that doesn't change, to give them light. And then the scriptures also say you should not hide your light not put it under a bushel, but put it up on a hill where it can sign. Okay, so what light is he talking about? Knowledge. He's talking about the knowledge of the things that you learn and that you have to share that. So consecration means you're learning for the purpose of sharing and uplifting other people. Go out and teach. Don't just... So this is how we do it in our time, our home real time. For the last three years, our homeschool has included a minimum of two or three other kids from other families. Wow. We don't charge for it. Um, this year, we're teaching one who is English second language. She's the sister of one of my son's wives. And she was just doing terrible in school. And she was just kind of coasting along. She was disrespectful at home. So we took her on as a homeschool. She comes over three days a week, and she's a part of the homeschool. And, and she has unbelievably bloomed and changed direction. And then we have two um, Samoan kids that come over. Fantastic kids. And so guess who teaches those kids? The kids. Right. The kids get assignments to teach them and they teach each other. They're friends of the same age. 
but they work together and they're doing the, and, and we're actually creating our English book right when we're doing not only English for these kids, but English for this person who's a second language English, right? And so that's helping to develop the English book that will become part of our curriculum wow. by giving, by, by giving it out. And that's what we should do. Everything we teach in our homeschools, we should be able to export that. So our kids ought to have opportunities to go teach what they've learned. Absolutely. And share the message. Share the gospel, not so much to go proselyte, but share the gospel truths they learn with their friends at church. Be Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe this question is too soon. And so if we want to shelve this, we can. But as you've made these, these five pillars kind of the 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 support structure for for your homeschool experience with your kids what has been the outcome what have you seen that is different than somebody coming out of public education i'm not sure how to answer that because maybe we have an unfair advantage because our our experience has been pretty unique and we've had these all these different opportunities to homeschool sometimes junior high, sometimes because they're special needs. But our youngest three especially have been pretty much directly involved in the creation of the curriculum and then going out and sharing it. In fact, our last two presentations, we were in Montana and in Pocatello here about three weeks ago. And my two kids had to get up and actually do a presentation themselves. They had to learn how to and their presentation was on how to ask questions. So, you know, that's what they do. They come to be a part of and help us out with the books and at the home show, or the uh, Book of Mormon Expo and other shows we do. They teach, they teach at home, and they pretty much have friends across the country. When we've gone everywhere we've gone, they end up being involved in all these kids that are kind of coming and and so they've it's been pretty remarkable and especially it's been remarkable because i have a couple of kids that are older that went one of them went to byu and has lost his testimony and so he's constantly pounding my one young son about evolution and he's able to contend with it stand his ground and show him things that he's learned so it's given them tools and it's given them the ideas. The truth will come when we see how they do when they become parents themselves, right? We sure. don't know yet. That's, sure. that, that's the unknown. One of the things, so when we started homeschooling, I, uh, I asked around for good examples of homeschooling. This was during that three months I was telling you I was feeling like I was screwing it up, right? That me and my wife maybe weren't qualified to do this. <clears throat> and so I went around, I talked to a couple of different homeschoolers and, and you kind of hit on this um, in, in an indirect way. One of the things that I noticed about all of their kids were is that they were so well-rounded and they were so engaged in whatever it was they were doing. And so we would ask these parents questions. 
And I remember this one one gentleman, and I'll, I'll forever be thankful for him because he 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 reframed the conversation for me. He said, "Stop trying to recreate public education in your home. Just stop." Because for some reason, that was my default go-to, right? It's like, okay, we need a certain amount of time for this, this, and this. What I've noticed out of my kids, and because they're mine, it's absolutely nothing less than miraculous. But as, as I've watched my kids who are being homeschooled now compared to the ones who were uh, educated by public education, is that my twins are way more well-rounded. Right. And they engage the world in a much different way than than my my four older ones did. And it caused me to sit back for a minute and say, okay, what what was different about this? And what I realized is that we put it back on them a little bit. Right. We said, okay, here's the things we want you guys to learn. You go look it up and you go learn it. And then come back and let's talk about it so I make sure that you're getting everything you need. Now, I didn't know about Universal Model at that time or anything else, um, but they they engaged much more. And that was something that was miraculous from my point of view. I'm really and, glad you brought that up because we kind of skipped a step that I wanted to throw in there is once you are in the process of thinking about homeschooling, one of the things we advocate pretty strongly is as soon as you get your kids out of school, the very first thing to do is nothing. Don't get them in school. Now, I don't want to use the term unschool because the unschool community is kind of this laissez-faire. They never let the kids just kind of do whatever they want. But rather think of de-schooling. Um, like you said, you're detoxing. Well, you need to de-school. And if that means you go for an entire year, so what? That's okay. They're going to just be able to get around you and hang around you and be part of the family. And that's all right. It's, a, it's not going to hurt anybody in the long run if you spend a year doing absolutely nothing. It's not going to make a difference in the long run. And so that's the most important thing to remember is that kids are resilient there's been a lot of times in the world where things didn't go and they had to skip a whole year and they can catch, pick back up. It's not, it's not that hard. They'll be back on path. Well, and, and even this idea of catch up Russ, I'm not sure that that's actually even, I'm not sure that's even a thing, right? I mean, yeah, I, I would agree. And so the term catch up is probably even a misused term. Yeah, I, all just... I'm, I guess all I'm really saying is that they're not going to fall back into the where they're going to be these dumb people, these idiots that come out of the end and do nothing and know nothing. No, they're going to be fine. No, no. they're going to be more successful, in fact, because they'll finally have been broken off of that that drug that has I think modern education is is a drug. And don't recommit, don't recreate the modern education in your in, in your home. In fact, be careful about thinking, you talk about classical education. Be careful about the books you bring in right. and the concepts. You need to get that stuff out of your house or at least out of the mainstream. Not that I'm saying we have to ban all the books, but let's not make those antichrist books the focus 
of or the center of our education. Yeah. Yeah. It also the experience I've been having with my twins has also led me to believe that I think we shortchange our children a lot by thinking they're incapable. Right? Yeah, I yeah. go back I go back to what I saw with my twins. When I put it back on them after because we shut it down a second time, right? I told you we had that detox thing. And then we re we tried to recreate public education in the home. And that didn't, you know, it, it was better, but it wasn't great yet. When we finally said, okay, what do we want to learn about today? You know, this month, we usually go month by month. Let's pick a subject. And like you said, you kind of incorporate everything into that one subject, history, mm -hmm. math, physical science, the, the whole ball of wax. Um, and we put it kind of back on them, right? Okay, find out what you can about these five subjects within this larger, usually it's a historical event. Bring it back to us and let's look at it. They were bringing back stuff that, I'll be honest with you, Russ, I was writing in college, right? I mean, I'm like, I could have totally have copied your paper my sophomore year. I mean, totally. We, we'd have been fine. Which leads back to me thinking, we've really shortchanged our kids by thinking that they weren't mature enough to do certain things. And I, what I figured out, and again, I'm slow. So it took me a while to figure this out. Your kids will almost always achieve the goal that you help them set. Always the bar that you expect almost always your kids will meet. And if they don't, that's probably on me because I didn't explain it well. Uh, I look back at Washington, who's Fairfax County, Virginia surveyor at 16 years old, right? That's not that long ago. There's a comedian that says that's like two people ago or three people ago, right? That wasn't he that wasn't, long ago. He wasn't using a computer and GPS either, was he? No, no. And so I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong on this, but sometimes I feel like we've just shortchanged our kids by just assuming that they can't do hard things i agree they can yeah and and i look at my kids now the the two that we have homeschooled and i'm like night and day difference night and day so this is the spread of our life in the human body book and we'll go through i'll just kind of show you a couple of uh spread when i say spread it's the if you opened it up that's the two pages side by side that you look at Okay. So all of our workbooks, and we like to think of them as supplementary. We don't necessarily think that this is a whole curriculum. They should do just this, but you can teach what you're teaching at home, doing your own thing, and then just add this in as supplementary. Add your own math, do whatever you want to do. Because we know that there's no one way to do this. You're going to probably do something, and then next year you'll do something different. And so that's kind of our idea is that this is just supplementary as you go along in your school career. And if it's right for you, then, then this will work. But we also all start everything. Everything starts out with asking questions and teaching kids how to ask questions. So in some variation, all of our workbooks are gonna have a spread like this. It's gonna teach them how to answer questions. And we began this, you actually use this word critical, okay? We've been trained to think that we need to be critical thinkers. 
I believe that that's a twist or a counterfeit of what we actually should do because critical, the root of critical is to criticize or to tear something apart. Now, there's some value in that, but I think the most important thing we should do is be objective in our thinking. So objecting means asking and asking questions with an open mind. The other questioning attitudes like critical or partial are ways of asking questions without being open-minded, including critical. So I think we have to kind of change our ideology to thinking objectively and asking objectively and reviewing that. So I won't go into all the, the details about these questions, but there is a really big deal to understanding the difference between knowledge and wisdom. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and they partook of the fruit of the tree of what? Knowledge. knowledge. We add the clarifier of good and evil, and that kind of takes away the real value as the tree of knowledge. And remember, what is truth? Truth is knowledge of things that doesn't change over time. So when they partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, they were partaking of the fruit of the tree of truth, truth. or light or spirit of God. This was a fullness. They were participating in this fullness of truth, light, and knowledge, and the process would bring death, But and that's another subject. But keep in mind, so our job is to go find knowledge, teach our kids knowledge. And then the Lord will actually give us the wisdom questions of how, answers to wisdom questions of how and why. And again, you can tie that to the scriptures. You can go back to Moses chapter 1, and in it, Moses asked the Lord a question. He says, tell me, Lord, how this happened, and I'll be happy. And the Lord answers and says, here is wisdom, and it remaineth in me. So the answers to that question of how is a wisdom question, and God did not want to tell him that yet. Right. Anyway, so we, we start with that, teaching questions, and learning about the laws of wisdom and knowledge. And then our workbooks are also hands-on. So in this case, we start with them doing a pattern. A simple apron pattern, because the idea is to learn about the pattern of what God has done before. This isn't new. You don't have to reinvent it. This is a pattern. All things have a plan. God doesn't do anything that he doesn't have a plan. So the plan, which we like to refer to as a plan of salvation, sort of identifies what God's business is. His business is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, right? Right. So that business is why he created the earth. So that's a part of the plan, right? And then he did that by bringing these ingredients. And so they, we have them make cookies. All of these things are to kind of conceptualize the idea of a pattern, plan, and then the ingredients, which sets the stage to learn about DNA. So hmm. now you can dive as deep as you need to. And we're not afraid of taking you deep into DNA, like right over here. And then the next thing they do is they actually make DNA. They make the double helix, they make their base pairs out of simple things. And they understand now the greatest storage system that has ever been discovered on planet Earth is DNA. And it helps them to start understanding the science behind why evolution couldn't have happened. Then they build a cell. And so they look at that cell and they build the specific, you know, the parts and pieces of a cell, again, having as fun or as much as you want, and then that comes together and you say, okay, now is this an accident? Now that you've seen all of this design work, was it an accident? 
and then you talk about how circle the items right here that you think were made by accident. See that right there? Right. And so you, you have and the important important part is for parents to just have the discussion, like you said, talk about it. And that then let them so cool. And then we actually have the we talk about often how there are two different beliefs. You've got modern science and then you've got UM world history. And you talk about, okay, these are the two things. What is modern science's answer about from where did humans come? What is their answer? And what is the biblical answer? That is awesome. <clears throat> then we also talk about here, um, for example, we teach them how to read an article. Now, if you read that article, it says what? Evolution's in a Petri dish. It kind of acts like it proves it, right? Right. But this might be too um, small for you down here, but it even calls out. It says, research that shows microscopic worms on the verge of speciation produces evolution, provides evolution with experimental evidence, evidence that creationism does not have. So they're calling out creation and send this article, Right. Right. But it says research that shows microscopic worms on the verge of speciation. On the verge. How about this right here? In the lab, microscopic worms, C. elegans, almost evolved. <laughs> okay. Or here's this one right here. These worms have not fully evolved into separate species, novice conceived, but they seem close. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's one of those things where I feel like Okay, this is Scientific American right here, December 2007. Ugh. Okay, what this is, is it's called Spot the Knot. It's an exercise that we teach the kids to go look for things like might have, could have, fraud, you know, appears to, almost inferred. Look for the words. So they, they pick any article they want. They, what did they learn? What knots did you find? And then do you disagree or agree with the article? Explain. So we're not trying to... We're not anti-sciencing them. We're saying, go read it objectively. See what they're saying. Did you notice anything that were not proven thoughts? Oh, that is so cool. Because I feel like it, it, it really is teaching them how to think, right? Which I think is more yeah. important than, than anything else. And then we go on and talk about, there's a lot of stuff like coincidence, no such thing as coincidence. And so, you know, here's, here we are talking about the body book and we're talking about a solar and lunar eclipse. We're talking about um, the earth and human, you know, so you, you're bringing this stuff together. Animals can create amazing things. They have, their job on this is to just go name what animal goes to what creation here. Fill in the blanks. These are all created by animals naturally. And then we have them create their own collage, cut out pictures, create your own thing. And then we talk about God's most amazing creation. And so if you'll notice, we didn't go to the babies through the avenue of sex. We went through to the baby through the avenue of creation first. Right. So that we're recognizing what the body is as a creation. And then we just go through and talk about it. And we talk about where does life begin? We don't answer that. We say, these are the things that are going on. This happens, this happens, this happens. Parents, it's up to you to figure out when life begins. It's up for you. You know, it's not my job to tell your kids. It's your job. But then, even then, we talk about, we connect life to the fertility and culture, which means 
the how many babies we're having. How do we, what's the purpose of having these babies in a community? And right. then we talk about genetics and what's different, what's so unique. There's no possible way that you could be anything other than you. Then we get into the stuff that's genders from a science point of view about why there's only two genders and about the roles of men and women. Oh, Russ, that's so hateful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and see, now, now that we've kind of gone away, it's not about sex anymore. It's about these are the things that are happening. And so we get directly into what the body changes are going on. Right. But we focus on the privilege and blessing of becoming a woman. And we focus on the, the responsibility of, and honor of becoming a man. You know, so it's, it's not about, yes, your body is going through these changes, but we don't need to sexualize it. Right. What we need to do is turn it back to the family. And so this leads to the family and the different family roles. Hmm. And then we get into what it means, the differences. You know, a lot of times modern science will try to tell us that there's only 3% difference between us and a chimpanzee, so it must be all right. And so we, we go for it from that point of view. Right. What are the differences? What are the similarities? And then we compare that. Okay, there's similarities in this house too. We've got a dog house and a house and a building. You know, what are the similarities there? They're they're 93% similar. Sure, sure. And it doesn't take into account just how stark the 7% really yeah. is. And then we talk about things like humans cannot. Okay. Yeah. Um, that other animals can never overcome. Right. Only only man has the ability to overcome those things. And so all this is about the difference between conscience, responsibility, agency, so that you're understanding and you're seeing the things that happen in the animal kingdom versus man, which sets up for us to understand the sphere of life agency. Like, for example, when God creates, plants have less agency than animals and animals have less agency than humans. Right? Things are created right. in their order of agency. Yeah. And then we have, um, we talk about health so that we're not disparaging or qualifying or disqualifying things like essential oils, reflexology, acupuncture. And we all we're trying to do is say, okay, there's two different people. Some people think this way, some think this way. What do you think? What does your family think? So you're opening the door to have the discussions with your kids about what you think and how you want to do it. And then we have um, a pretty big deal about anxiety, about how to deal with anxiety. And this page is supposed to look frenetic because it's supposed to say, that's what you feel like sometimes. Right. And um, this is the midpoint in the book. And that's where they start creating a body now. So they're going to take this piece of paper. They're going to create an outline of their body. And then we're going to get deep into these systems here. Okay. Okay. So this is where you were saying that sometimes we um, shortchange our kids. Well, look at the stuff they're going to learn here. They start by creating a nerve bundle. And that nerve bundle is then added to bones. And they're going to learn about all the different parts of the bones, the spine and that. So, you know, this is, these are young guys. They're here. They're eight, nine years old. They're learning about lumbar, thoracic, cervical. 
you know, they're, they're going as deep as you need to go. But this is, if your child is a little bit younger and this is too much for them, then you're going to focus on this side. You're going to talk about just the simple stuff. Right. But you know what? If you've got a 10-year-old that wants to be a nurse and not a 10 or, you know, say a 12, 13-year-old that wants to be a nurse, they've got to learn these things. They're going to have to take a physical, uh, physiology anatomy class anyway. Let them dive. Let them get into this. Right. So, oh, wow. You, well, let me ask you this question here. Because I love the way this is all laid out. I love how it builds on top of each other. I love the fact that the, the scriptures and the gospel are incorporated. I love the fact that it can be scaled up or down depending on a child's uh, position or maturity level. Mm -hmm. Is there any way, it, and I asked this about the universal model specifically, because again, my kids are almost all grown. I have my my youngest, my two youngest will be 17 in, in a couple of months. Right. But I worry about my grandkids now. Um, is, is there a way that somebody can pick up the universal model and get an example of how it's taught by somebody? Well, um, I have, I don't think I loaded the, volume one workbook that's okay so this if you'll notice at the top of our workbook pages it'll say page 630 in um volume two so it'll tell you where in the um this is coming from here's from 626 to 628 a lot of this isn't in the um because the um only addresses things that are different right that are kind of unique right we're hoping to write a companion book for this that will take the UM material and then fill in the blanks and have this discussion. This okay. right here is pretty cool. For example, there are three brains. Did you know you have three brains? Uh, I did not. I, I know that there's two, one in the in, inside my dome and then one uh, one in my gut. Right. There are actually three. And, they're, and it's based on them being neurons. Neuron cells or brain cells, okay, are actually in your gut, in your heart, and in your cranial brain. And huh. they connect through this vagus nerve right here. So they're connected. This nerve connects. And if, if you think of this from a scriptural point of view, remember that idea about how two or more can testify of the truth? Right. So your, your brain can be deceived. Your cranial brain, you can be... You can smell or see or hear something that's not right. You can be tricked. Your heart can also be deceived. But when you have the testimony of these three things, your heart, your gut, and your brain, you can avoid a lot of trouble in your life if you get those three things working in, in concert, right? Right. So um, let me just pop in a real quick and we'll just give you a quick look at the world geography book and that one is again we start with the same kind of things about these questions see it's just a little bit different layout here's the learning process about the questions that describe the knowledge questions versus the intangible so it's just a way of different of looking at it differently this one you start by gridding you learn how to grid so you're going to take that picture and transfer it to that just you're learning how to grid Okay. 
And then um, we set the stage for learning by faith. And eventually you're going to actually draw this whole big grid on a big project board. Okay. So this is kind of shown small here because this folds out in the book. It folds out to a, a two feet wide and you're going to build a big board. We'll show you that in just a minute. But then we start geography in the Garden of Eden. Okay. Nice. And we start, okay, here we are, Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are cast out. What tools did they make to kill the animals to offer sacrifice? Death wasn't in the garden before, so there were no tools. Why is that important? As we learn about these tools, we learn about where Adam first lived. Because these tools, these stone tools are left in the record. And here they are right here in America. Right. So before the flood, we're now showing where Adam lived which leads us to understand more about the ark and then where they landed and how the earth was divided, the Tower of Babel, how the three languages, the three pictographic languages developed from the Tower of Babel. This is the out of Africa theory that's in modern science. This is the Noah record and how he describes things. So you're learning the two, two ways of supposed migrations of people and learning about how big the earth is now, how do you map a flat map on a globe? So they actually do a little, again, you can see this one's geared more towards a younger age. Right. This is atmospheric layers, oceanic layers, time zones, seas, navigation, ancient explorers, um, climate, shortest, longest days of the year. This is all geography. So you can see the... the the depth of all of this stuff that's, that's coming out here, right? It's not just simply where places are, but it's about things that shape those places. Like weather, current flow. Here's another little simple thing for the younger people. Um, and then here's your first map. This is what that map will look like when you get it. You can see how big that is now, right? Yep. The, the little printout is the size that's in their book. And this is the big map that they're going to create. Okay, and this takes the entire semester, entire year, I mean, to do. So it's not immediate gratification. You're going to take some time and you're going to go through this and add mountain ranges and peaks and valleys. And at the same time, you're going to learn about the mountains and the scriptures, like Mount of Transfiguration. Where was it? Where was Mount Ararat? Well, where's Mount Horeb? And so you, you have the scriptures up here. You match them up and go find it, put it on your map. The mountain of the Lord. Okay, um, Psalms. So you're you're combining physical facts with scriptural stories and history. That's cool. Things you, like you, Dead Sea. Yeah. What? I was going to say one of the other things that I loved is the fact that going back to uh, the the one you showed about you know the out of Africa model versus the Noah account. Mm -hmm. I, I like the fact that in all this that we're seeing on here you haven't shied away from maybe the opposition's point of view. You, you confront it head on right here, origin of water. Yep. Here's the intelligent engineer creation process. And then here's the random core accretion model. Yeah. Okay? Right. So, and we're pulling this from space.com and we're pulling this from King James version Genesis. Right. So we're just saying, okay, here are the two stories about how this happened. And you're just learning this alongside here, the terms that you're going to find in geography. And then water, 
hydrovolcanoes, water volcanoes, craters. So, and it's fun. It's stuff that the kids love. I mean, one of the great things they do is when we talk about America, we, we not only talk about the United States, but the covenant. What makes it important here? Right. And what kid doesn't love flags? You know, they got to do all that. And then we do Canada and Mexico too. So you're learning about the states in Mexico. Again, you can dive as deep as you want or the provinces in Canada. And then we do a little bit about each country. You pick your own and then we do natural hazards. And so you're, you're going through all those things. And at, toward the end, this is where here's your poorest countries. And the purpose of understanding that is that we can make a difference. And so the, these are the scriptures that tell us about what do we need to do to love our neighbor and how do we make a difference? And so you do a service project. And the service project, um, and then the very last thing, I'm not sure if this one's going to show. This is the very last thing. On Earth, Earth Day, April 22nd each year, is about how we're supposed to go out and plant trees, clean up rivers, and do all these things, right? Right. So this is the good stuff, but it's done for a bad way. This is idolatry. Right. But God says, let us give man in our image and let's give him dominion. So dominion over the fish of the sea, fowl of the air, and over all the cattle, right? So he's supposed to have dominion. And by having dominion means he has to do the same things as Earth Day, but we're doing it for a different reason now. We're doing it as part of the commandment given to Adam. And so they do a dominion mandate service project. That's the last thing they do. And then here's their final map. So at the end, they've got a map there, and it's got it's got all the, the tundra and the mountain and the mid-Atlantic ridge and time zones and and they've wow. created this. They've made the map themselves. And I'm telling you, it makes a huge difference. Oh, yeah. Our, our kids, you can ask them, they'll say, you know, they, they'll say, well, where is this? And they'll say, oh, no, no, that's not there. That's not, that's in Europe. It's up there. The upper... <laughs> and they'll tell you where the, where the different <laughs> countries are, where the different rivers are. So. That is so cool. Yeah, no, I I feel like you guys have done just a tremendous job here and 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 just not presenting facts as you understand them, but again, going and showing what what the opposing view side is, right? Um the, the other thing, I love how you reframed Earth Day, right? One of the things I've often said is that I feel like the environmental movement kind of puts things on its head where you you worship the creation rather than the creator you're exactly right and and i i love how you put that back into its proper context that's it's just stupendous and you do this I, with every subject right not just uh you know earth science or whatever but every single right. every single subject yep and that's the whole thing is if you understand Satan can never create. He can only imitate. Right. So if you see something that is, is false, then all you need to do is just look at the imitation. What is it imitating? What is it trying to corrupt or counterfeit? Because the truth is close by. Satan can never do it right. And he's always trying to twist it and turn it just a little bit. So I think it's important that our kids know what is being taught in modern schools because most of their peers that they grow up and go to work are going to know these things. And if they know them, 
It's a lot harder to make them feel dumb when somebody comes at them and they have knowledge of the basic idea of evolution or age of the earth or earth day. And they can say, well, no, that's not true. This is. And they can talk about both sides. That gives them power. Absolutely. Knowledge, knowledge is power. Absolutely. This is laid out so well. I'm, I'm, Kind of irritated. I didn't know about this when I jerked my my twins out of school. But it's, you know the thing is, is Dave is there's no get your kids out of school. That was the best thing you could do. You know we have one of many good ideas. One of the things that we debated is whether or not we should make this just Christian or should we dive in and bring in what Joseph Smith gave to us in the way of more light and knowledge and. Ultimately, we had to go that way. If right. we don't honor the restoration and the things that we've been given through Joseph Smith, then why? What's the point? So it's pretty critical, and that's why we use the inspired version when we talk about scriptures most of the time. And we also turn back to the revelations that Joseph gives us about things. So Joseph Smith and, and the standard works of the church are kind of the things we use as our baseline when we're comparing this versus that. We try as much as possible to just lay things out so that you can teach your kids and you give them your opinions and your ideas. Yeah. Because ultimately, I, you I are qualified. Yeah, I should have saved that question about, you know, um, an example of teaching it for the for this part. Because as I look through this, even a guy like me could have figured this out. Right. I mean, this lays out in such an easy way that it's it's just incredible. Yes, but it's not easy. You can't just go fill it out. It requires no. thought. And, you know, each of the processes, the questions themselves are they require that you get in and get in and start digging and you learn about stuff. You got to look it up. It's not just the most important thing, though, what's worked the best and all the people we've talked to that do this is that has brought the kids together and they've had a conversation. You cannot give this workbook and say, okay, Johnny, go do this and come tell me when you're finished. It creates the environment where you must engage. And that has to be that way, Dave, because how many people grew up knowing that the earth was formed in water? Right. Almost nobody. And so you can't just send your, your kids off to know something that you don't even know yourself. You need to know that. It's like Earth Day. We hear about it all the time. But how many people know that there is a dominion mandate that's exactly that takes away that counterfeit? Right. And how many there's so many things where we talk about the, um, the scriptures about things and how they happen. And yet here's the science. Bring them together. And now we know the reason for these things. This is one of my things right here. One of my favorite is less sediment. Have you ever even heard of less sediment? No. Modern science says less sediment is left over gravel ground up by the last ice age. But if you look down here, all the red down here on this map, right? It's all less and you know these these less areas are the greatest bread baskets in all the world. Everywhere mm -hmm. the major food sources are is where less sediment exists. And less is a living sediment. It's a combination of both silica and calcium carbonate, bacteria-rich stuff. There's no way that it came other than just by the flood, the universal flood. 
And so when you know God has fed the world because of the sediment that came out during the flood. And there's mm -hmm. no other way to account for how that sediment got there. Wow. It's just, again, I feel every time I talk to you, I feel like, I feel like it gets exposed just how shortchanged we've been for a lot, a lot of years with public education. Yes, we indeed have. Um, let, let me ask you this from your own experience, Russ. <clears throat> what, what are going to be some of the common challenges parents are going to face when they pick up the universal model and they take their kids out of school? Well, the universal model itself is a big book. And so it's going to be overwhelming and probably a little bit intimidating. It's 800 pages in volume one. So I probably would not take your kids out just to teach in the UM. What I would look right. at is let the UM be a supplemental curriculum. And the reason that we did the body book and the geography is those two things seem to be pretty hot topics today, especially the body book and over what, what's being taught in schools, <laughs> you know, and, and so this, this gave us a way to say, okay, here's the science behind, behind how you can teach two genders without coming out and making the gender itself be the problem. Okay. And so we didn't come at it like, oh, there's only two genders. What we did is scientifically show this is how there are only two genders and this is why. We're not talking about what's in your mind or identifying. It's just, it's the science and it's not related to sexuality. It's just related to the roles of men and women, children and adults and all these different phases of life, right? So we're, it's non-confrontational way of dealing with genders. Gotcha. And then the other thing is in geography, um, I believe that if we don't give our kids foundation that the scriptures are true, then when they get and they face things like evolution in even BYU and BYU-Idaho, they're not going to have the strength to be able to say, I've got enough over here to stand. Right. So we, you know, we want to teach them that Adam was a real person. He really lived and his works and his words were real. And we can have confidence that that story is a true story. That's why we decided that geography was an important thing because it starts at that at at the Garden of Eden, making the Garden of Eden a real thing. Absolutely. Well, dude, I can't tell you how thankful I am for you and your the work you've done, not just with the universal model, but I, I feel like your voice is, is one of the more important ones that out there basically telling parents that they can do this. Um, it, it's, I usually try to, to guard my words very carefully, but I'm going to go, go a little further out here. <clears throat> I feel like if, if we don't start engaging in some of these alternatives that get our kids back on a sure footing I fear that in another generation, we're going to see that religion as a whole, forget Mormonism, religion in general, is going to go the way of Europe in the United States. We, we already see it. And I don't know if you ever watched 
you know, Terminator or whatever. But I think we've got to start incorpor- getting a little bit comfortable with this idea of we're training up the resistance in a certain way, right? Not violently, but training up our kids so that they can stand for these truths. And I feel like your voice here on this stuff is just so, so important. I believe there are a lot of voices out there, Dave, that we're one of many. There are people out there that are truth tellers and that they're searching for this. And the people that I have had the, the, the chance to be around, Dean Sessions as the author of the UM, Rod Meldrum as the guy that's working the Heartland model, Hannah Stoddard with Joseph Smith Foundation. I've worked with all three of these people and their organizations, and all of, they, all of them have a piece to add. And I think it's really important that we we start bringing and giving our good, take back our kids, excuse me, take back our kids and take them back and teach them that the scriptures are true. Joseph Smith is a prophet. Jesus Christ is our savior. And then teach around that. And if it doesn't teach those things, don't teach it. Now, that doesn't mean you can't teach geography, but you can teach geography that affirms scriptures and affirms Christ and affirms Joseph Smith. And you can teach about the body. You can teach math. You can teach English. But those things need to always come back to those fundamental questions that we're constantly reinforcing and answering. Or you're right, we're going to lose the next generation. More than 72% of all millennials are already leaving the church anyway. The next generation, if we don't change it, it's going to be in the 90s. We've got to take back our kids and teach them the truth. Hold on a second. 72% are leaving the LDS church today. 72% of millennials are leaving all Christian churches. Because the millennial generation has more faith in science than they do in the Word of God. Because we failed to tell them the things they need to know, the truth of the Word of God. So instead of just talking about, we we keep letting them go learn about how cool science is, but we think that the Bible is myth. And I'm just about finished with a book I wrote on water. I'm probably about maybe another two weeks away, and I'm going to try to get it out and published. It's going to be just a little, my idea is to create bite-sized readable stuff, you know, a of 100, 150 pages, so you can kind of put it in your pocket and read it as you go. But it's going to talk about how water forms the most important part of the earth, meaning the creation, and how it's this whole walk of water all the way through all the major events that happened. The creation, the fall, the flood, the exodus, um, the restoration of the gospel, America coming to America. Water plays an integral role in all of those things. And so I I can't wait to get that done. I want to share that information so that our kids can go, oh, my gosh, this is true. Look at all these cool science that we can do, that we can look at, we can explain and understand. I'm excited to get that out. Yeah, that's going to be. Do me a favor. When that book is out, Mm -hmm. give me a call. I want to have you back on to talk about the book a little bit. Okay. Because uh, I would be be fascinated in hearing about that. Real quick, what do you think will be, as you've seen people teach this now, how long has the universal model been out, Russ? Uh, the, the book printing came out in an uh, interesting date. Is that the first day it was delivered 
to the world was April 6th, 2017. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was literally, it came into my warehouse. We loaded it up. We quick drove up to Salt Lake. The first day of the conference was April 6th. And so the universal model, April 6th, 2017. Wow. Two years later in 2019 is when volume two came out. And volume, it's also the same time that um, the first workbook came out in 2019. And then actually right at the beginning of 2020 is when the second workbook in UM Volume 2. So our homeschool curriculum based on the UM is actually that we've started making it public just public just since 2020, okay. beginning of 2020. So okay. we had... What, what, what kind of feedback are you hearing from people who are using it most of the time it's it goes something like this you get a call they're really excited they pick it up they go home they call back a few weeks later and talk about and say okay this is different than i ever expected i was thinking you're just going to go you know just like a normal workbook but what we found is that it has created opportunities of conversation on our whole family we talk about things and i've noticed this one actually gal called us just a couple of weeks ago. She said, I was used to immediate gratification where I would take their pages. I would grade them and the kids would get their grade right away. This doesn't do that. This focuses on the long haul. This actually goes through the process of you're doing these things that you're going to see the reward at the end of the semester rather than just this week. Right. So those are two things that we found that are positive is that it's, causing conversation it's bringing people together we know a lot of people don't do the whole book they do some and then they don't do others some people don't do the projects some people do but it's creating conversation and almost everybody that's engaged in it has said whatever it is we're doing the next one too because it's so different it's different than any other workbook because it's not just to fill in the blank it is truly it's both sides it's teaching you how to think and it's engaging families. So do you guys have any plans to keep this updated, right? I mean, as, as new things come along or you guys discover something else, is that part of the part of the plan? Are you talking about universal model or the workbooks? Both. Well, our workbooks, um, we're, we actually have an English workbook that's getting close, that's going to be based on... Um, our English is based on the standard work. So this one will be on the New Testament. It'll be based on the um, inspired version of the New Testament. So all the English. And because it's New Testament, it will have Greek and Latin root words and discussions. Because during the New Testament times, English and Latin were the common languages of the time. The Old Testament one will deal with ancient Hebrew and other Sumerian type older languages. And then in the Book of Mormon, we'll deal with Old English and um, the kind of languages that would have potentially affected the Nephites and where the Nephites might have gone. And, you know, and we will have a discussion about Nephites and where they went. So in other words, it's history, it's science, it's English, it's all of that brought together under one, one thing. Yeah. But it'll be English. And then Heidi's also getting close on a history book american history so that's where i was going next if you guys did anything like civics right one of the things i feel like especially 
guys who are like my oldest son's age, mid twenties. Um, I know they weren't taking civics anymore, right? How, how government is supposed to operate, what the design was. Do you guys have stuff in there on that? Well, we actually, part of our homeschool is every election year, we had a kind of a module where for the first half of the year was focused entirely on government and the process of government. And part of the requirement is our kids had to go find somebody who was both Democrat and Republican, interview them both and defend both sides. And so so that was something that they did. But after Trump and after the way things changed with the election with Clinton, I mean, uh, not Clinton, but Biden, something shifted. And I think a lot of people kind of felt that shift. And I'm not really sure. We just kind of felt like it's not time to teach government anymore because the kind of things that are going on are no longer government. It's the Gaddy Ant robbers have taken over. Right. So maybe that will come back up, but we've decided to put that far enough down the list that it's not even on the radar right now. Gotcha. We want to focus on English and history. And then we're also creating these little bite-sized books, our pocket guide series where we can kind of put information out on quick read stuff, things that are, they're pretty plain in the scriptures. Once you read them, you can't unsee them. Right. But so few people see them, like understanding the nature of water and how important it is when the earth is created in water. And how do we know that? The rocks actually testify of that. And you can take your kids out and you can do an experiment and show them how water is in rocks. And right there in Orem, I can tell you, go to the east side, go pick some mountain rocks up from some granite rocks or some, um, and do an experiment, and I, and you'll find out there's water in that rock. You can test it. You can, you might not be able to collect it, but you can test it. And if you can get kids to think that way, that's the kind of science that's going to unlock water in rock. Gotcha. Now we know water's in rock. When Moses had two experiences when he was on the Exodus, about the first one was at Horeb when he stood on the rock and struck the rock and water flowed out. Right. Well, there was another place too. He actually twice struck a rock and water came out. So let, let me ask you this. what What's the plan for the universal model, say 10 or 20 years down the road? Do you f- foresee many changes happening to it? Do you, what's something you guys are, are, looking at or or do you feel like you know what we're done because <laughs> it sounds no, no actually worked on this actually ever yeah volume three has not been published yet it's probably about half done dean's been working on getting his barn built back up so we can get back into doing some experimentation and hopefully that's going to happen here pretty soon so he can get back in and we can get volume three published because that has a lot of uh, physics in it things about weight length time um, light, stars, starlight, and cosmology. There's, a, there's an, a, like amazing things that are coming that are going to blow the doors off the physics side of the world and of, uh, of thinking. I'm pretty excited because I've seen some of the stuff and been involved in some of the experiments. It's just fantastic stuff. And 
how are and, and maybe it's too soon to ask this question because it's only only really been out what five maybe six years now but do we have any feedback on how kids are doing once they go into higher education like college or whatever after having exposure to the universal model the only exposure i've had to that is that along the way i would go teach a local private school here once a year just to give a kind of an an overview of what the universal model is i've had kids that have gone on and they've gone into college and called back and that one single presentation intrigued them so much that they reached out to find out if the book had even been printed because they wanted to get the book. And, and so, but whether or not that's uh, helped somebody that's in college, I don't know. There's a lot of people, a lot of younger people that have stood up and, and uh, said, we're not going to go down the road of evolution and billions of years old earth. And part of those have been because the UM has given them that foundation. There are some of those. I don't know that they've taken the UM into college. There is one college that uses it, Monticello College by Shannon Brooks. Their primary campus is in Monticello, Utah, mm-hmm. but they are opening one up in um, in Idaho. And it's one of their required readings is the universal model. Wow. So little, little by little. And have you seen, you said you've given presentation at private schools on this. Do you know of any private schools that are using the universal model? Yeah, there's a, there are a few that use that as supplemental curriculum for sure. And uh, Montana, Idaho. So they are, there, there's some using that. Okay. So when, and, and these are just, questions i have from the uh, practical standpoint so when when your child's done with their k through 12 education then is this going to satisfy most state requirements for a diploma well that's why we think of it as as a supplemental because it doesn't have all the pieces that you need to have a full-grown okay a curriculum like doesn't have math um so you know and so it's not been a fully accredited system but what we have done with a lot of the people that are homeschooled anyway is that if they need some kind of a document, a lot of states don't require that. But if they need something, then you can go online and there are ways that you can do certain things. Like um, one of my kids graduated last year and she needed a, a diploma so that she could get into an advanced program. She wants to be a, a, a midwife, which means she has to become a nurse. And so she had to have a diploma to be able to get into the nursing program. Gotcha. And so she went online and it took her about six months to go through the entire, um, the entire thing class load to get her diploma six months for the whole high school. Wow. So, well, good so it's, there's a lot of, there's ways around it for sure. You have to be creative, but there's ways. That's awesome. All right. Well, Russ, is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to get to? You know, I just would, would ask people to reach out. If they have questions, reach out to us at True Seekers Foundation. You can call me on my cell if you want. I'll be glad to talk to anybody. That number is 702-400-9200. Um, and if you want, go to our website, True Seekers Foundation, sign up for our email so that we can send out when we get the new books out or when we have this information that we can share it 
just engage. Whatever you do, take back your kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, like I said, I, I feel like we're entering a time now, Russ, where as, I don't know, maybe the, the best word is traditional Americans, right? Uh, traditional members of, of the LDS church or fundamentalists, whoever you are, I think we're at a point now to where we, we're going to have to start thinking outside the box when it comes to things like education. Even maybe right. things like college and commerce, we're going to have to start getting a little more resourceful on, on how we get these things done. Because if we leave it up to the current structure that exists as is, they will produce a child that is so unlike their parents that it's horrifying. Sure. It's horrifying. Um, well, we need to recognize who the real enemy is. It's yeah. not somebody that thinks a little bit different doctrinally than us. It's not some different sect or, you know, some Christian that's not in our same camp. That's not the enemy. The enemy is the one who's trying to take all of our children. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and <clears throat> I, the reason I feel like your voice is, is so important on this, and, and I know you've said you're just one of many, but I do think it's important, is that you've at least given people oh, a path to the lifeboat, so to speak. Um, because I just, I think of the, the normal, the normal parent and it's just, you know, it's tough, right? You got to balance work and, and stuff. And now you're going to talk about education. And, and I liked what you said earlier. We're going to have to start putting first things first, right? Start prioritizing really heavily because I think we're in a time where it calls for it. So. Right. But dude. Well, David's been a blast. Hanging out with you. Talking. I, I always love talking to you, man. It's so great. And, and, the more I see of this, the just the more fired up I get. And I haven't told my kids this yet, but I think I know what I'm getting them for Christmas next year or even an early Christmas present. I think they're going to get get this, and I'll, I'm sure they'll be calling you like, hey, my my old man who's nuts told me to give you a call, Russ. What's this, what's this I about? I certainly can. But anyway, dude, it's always awesome. I love it. Let's do this again sooner than later, all right? Yep, we'll do it. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Russ. Thanks, man. I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. All right. Bye, everybody. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.